Chapter Fourteen of East by West by Henry W. Lucy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Chapter Fourteen, Fate Day at Asakusa. Tokyo, the present capital of Japan, is eighteen miles from Yokohama. The two towns being connected by a line of railway that takes fifty minutes to do the journey. On the other hand, the fare charged is very high, being four shillings for a first-class ticket, and all luggage must be paid for. The railway, like most of the public works in Japan, was constructed by Englishmen, and all the material came from England. It is odd in crossing bridges spanning rivers in one of the oldest empires in the world to find familiar English names from Birmingham or Sheffield. The carriages are comfortable and well-appointed, forming a kind of compromise between the English and American system. The first and second class open from end to end, the seats being placed longitudinally, but in the first-class carriages a party of six can shut themselves in and be comfortable in truly English fashion. The guards and ticket collectors are dressed in neat uniforms. The stations at both termini are spacious stone buildings, with every accommodation, including the morning newspapers in the waiting-room. Displayed on one of the walls of the station is the meteorological report of the day, by which the traveller waiting for a train can learn how the wind is blowing at Nagasaki and under what degree of atmospheric depression people are living in Kyoto. The explanation of the chart is printed in Japanese and English. At Yokohama, the ticket clerk understands enough English to transact business with the foreigner. His colleague at Tokyo is more deliberate, requiring an appreciable space of time to grasp the fact that he is being asked for a ticket for Yokohama. But when the ticket office is closed, and the clerk resting from his labours, the station at Tokyo is a hard place for the Englishman who knows nothing of Japanese. On the day of my first visit, I had occasion to tell the coachman to return and meet me at the station at twenty minutes past twelve. I tried in various ways to make this clear to him. I took him to the clock pointed to the figure twelve, and showed how the minute-hand would come to twenty. He had followed me throughout with the short, sharp exclamation, Hi! with which Japanese servants and persons of the lower class indicate that they are attending to your instructions, and will hasten to obey them. But when it was all over, he bowed to the ground and stood looking at the clock. I fancy he thought I had been explaining its internal arrangements. Nothing could exceed the politeness of the officials who happened to be about. They crowded round and addressed me at much length, but nothing came of it, and we parted in despair. After a brief interval of rest, I had another struggle with the coachman, with the same result. At length, when all seemed dark and my engagement imperilled, the coachman said, Parlez-vous Francais? He had, it seemed, been to Paris with the legation, 
and had learned sufficient French to make intercourse for the rest of the day practically intelligible. Mr. Inouye, the foreign minister, had been good enough to send one of his secretaries with a carriage to meet us on arrival, and we drove what seemed the full length of Tokyo. Two bettos or runners accompanied the carriage and made things lively for the population along the route. A carriage is a rare spectacle in the streets of a Japanese town, and wherever one is used, the services of the betto are indispensable. He runs ahead, shouting at all corners, and where necessary, sometimes without necessity, pushing aside people in the roadway. Our bettos, wearing the livery of the foreign office, were as autocratic as their brethren in plush in western capitals, and surprised many innocent, unoffending men by pouncing upon them from behind and running them out of the roadway. People thus treated made no sign of resentment. A nation but just delivered from the tyranny of the two sordid men regards official bettos as quite gentle creatures. Tokyo is a widely different place from Yokohama. The European settlement is but a town of yesterday. Tokyo, as it is now called, Yedo, as it was named up to the period of the dethronement of the tycoon, was an important place in the year 1601, when it suffered the first of a long series of fires. In 1868 the Mikado visited Tokyo for the first time, and in the following year it became the recognized seat of the government. Its population is roughly estimated at a million, but authorities fix it at 800,000. This is a large number to house in small two-storied tenements, and accordingly Tokyo stretches itself out in all directions till it covers an area of eight square miles. There is nothing European about it, except here and there an official in petticoat lane dress. There are pavements in the principal streets, but as a rule the people prefer the roadway, over which they literally swarm. We drove through miles of streets, all densely populated, with the bettos running on ahead, perspiring and shouting with inordinate vigour. We were bound for the public gardens at Shiba, where a pleasant luncheon was served in a tree-embowered café. Afterwards we went to visit the temple of Sensoji at Asaksa, spelled A-S-A-K-U-S-A, -A pronounced Asaksa. It was the first fine day after long continued rain, and being a festival to boot, it seemed that all Tokyo had poured into the grounds within which the temple stands. The approach is banked on either side by long rows of booths, which, with the gay and laughing throng, make the place seem more like a fair than the approach to a famous and venerated temple. The fete day belonged to the god of happiness, whose favour was secured by the purchase of a gimcrack contrivance sold in many of the booths. This was made of pieces of stick crossed at right angles by a thicker piece, 
something after the fashion of a ship's mast and yard-arms. The spars were decorated with bits of coloured paper, ribbon, and artificial flowers. It might have served to while away an idle hour with a British two-year-old baby. Here it was reverently and hopefully carried by grown-up men and women, who were taking it home to hang up in an honoured place where it would secure happiness for the rest of the year. I saw two sailors belonging to a Japanese man-of-war carrying one of these toys carefully wrapped in paper, lest the sun might tarnish its glory or the rude wind ruffle it. In the booths were sold toys, sweetmeats, cakes, tea, sake, these contrivances for securing happiness, and seed for the doves that build their nests in the roof of the temple. One stream was passing upward to the steps of the temple, the other returning. Falling in with that on the right-hand side, we slowly made our way under the hot rays of the November sun, and amid the dust sent up by the trampling of ten thousand feet. Our progress was the less rapid by reason of the rarity of European mixture with such a crowd. The men of our party were dismissed from consideration after a rapid glance, but the ladies, their dress, their bonnets, their gloves, their boots, and their way of doing their hair, were phenomena which must be closely examined, even at the risk of bringing the whole procession to a halt. There was no rudeness or hustling. It simply came to this, that the God of happiness in his bounty, and incited by many prayers and offerings, had crowned the pleasure and excitement of the day by dropping in among the counter-attractions of the booths three ladies in strange garb, and the most must be made of the opportunity. The women gathered about and stared with undisguised curiosity. They furtively felt the material of dresses and cloaks, and were particularly struck by the arrangements of the back hair. Their general impression appeared to be one of good-humoured astonishment, not unmingled with pity for unfortunate persons of their sex who, either from necessity or choice, thus attired themselves. By slow degrees we reached the temple steps, and stood under the shadow of its overhanging roof. Before the temple is a red wooden structure of two stories, designed as an entrance gate. A number of large sandals were hung up before images of the two heavenly kings. They are placed there by persons who desire to become good walkers, and hereby avoid the necessity of ordinary training. Close by was a small altar erected to Jizo, the helper of those who are in trouble, a large class in Yedo as elsewhere. Three prayer-wheels, attached to as many posts, were in momentary use, men and women patiently waiting for their turn. Some of the Japanese have the comfortable doctrine that any sin which may beset them is due to actions accomplished in a former state of existence. Wishing to be quit of this sin, 
they come and turn the wheel, praying to the little bronze and gilt monstrosity squatted above the wheels, and even as the wheel revolves, this evil influence may speedily run its course to the end. A heap of small pebbles were disposed about the image. I thought this was the work of a rival sect who had been stoning Jizo, but our learned guide informed us that they had been brought hither by the loving hands of childless mothers, yearning for the well-being of little ones they had lost. It seems that in the other world there is a hag who haunts the river Sotsukawa, and whenever a little child appears in sight, robs it of its clothes and sets it to the task of piling up stones on the river bank. These pebbles are the mother's offering to lighten the task of her child. Presently, it must be some time in the dead of the night, the good Jizo will move his inadequate little legs beneath his great paunch, get some expression into the inanity of his smooth brazen face, and hie him off with the load of pebbles to cheer the little children. At the end of the row of booths, with its many colours and its moving throng, is the big red temple. At the top of the steps, within view of the screened altar, was a box eight feet long and about two wide, covered in at the top with a wooden framework of gridiron shape. There was no need to question the use of this contrivance. A devout multitude thronging the steps showered copper coins upon the gridiron, behind which the money disappeared and the record ended. The act of devotion before the shrine was quickly performed. The gods of the Buddhist mythology have a good deal to do. Like Baal, whom Elijah mocked, Peradventure at the moment Kwan Non or Bin Suru is approached, he sleepeth, or has gone on a journey, and it is necessary pointedly to call his attention to the petition before him. In most of the temples there is a gong with pendant rope, which, being pulled, strikes the gong and lets the god know that someone is around. At Asaksa, this desirable end is attained by clapping hands. I saw a little baby release its hands from the confinement of its mother's dress and clap them whilst it crowed a little prayer. The whole business is over in a few seconds. Holding out his hands straight before him, the worshipper brings his palms together smartly two or three times bends the head over the closed palms, mutters a prayer, and goes his way, not forgetting the gaping gridiron box. There are many gods in the temple, varying in popularity. Closely running Jizo in the affection of the people is Binzuru, upon whom Buddha conferred the power of curing all human ills. There was an eager throng round this idol men and women of all ages gravely rubbing the knee, the back, the chest, the foot, or the face of the grotesque image, and then rubbing the corresponding part of their own body. By this means, 
local affections are either alleviated or finally cured. Not far from the temple is the Kinzo, a structure from which it is evident a smart American took the idea of the revolving bookcase, which has found its way to many studious homes in England. In this are stored a complete edition of the Buddhist scriptures, nearly seven thousand volumes in all. This library possesses a gift which unhappily does not extend to modern modifications at home. It is decreed and written over the bookcase that anyone who will cause it to revolve twice on its axis shall have secured all the benefits naturally accruing from sitting down and reading the books through from volume one to volume six thousand seven hundred and seventy one inclusive. Another shrine erected to a four-syllable god, the spelling of whose name I forget, is noticeable for slips of paper stuck on the wire grating. They are placed there by persons who have asked this polysyllabic deity to grant them a special favour. Although thousands of slips are attached in the course of a week, the aggregate number never increases, since the last comer takes away the strip of his predecessor, and accepts it as the answer to his prayer, a game of cross-question and crooked answer which must sometimes be a little embarrassing. All this, seriously looked at, is piteous to contemplate. But there is nothing serious about the multitude that throng the steps of the temple, and from its heights are seen surging on in apparently endless stream. This is a fete day. The sun is shining forth after weeks of rain, and they are out for a holiday which they mean to enjoy. They take to their pleasure cheerily and gently. There is no pushing or jostling, and not a tipsy person in the ten thousand. They drink tea, a faintly yellow liquid, out of tiny cups, and if they take a cup or two of sake, it does not affect their outward behaviour, their politeness is unbounded. A man or woman of the poorest class approaching an acquaintance bends as lowly before him as if he were the Mikado. They are always laughing out of pure light-heartedness, and do not mar their holiday with excess of any kind, unless it be of devotion. The train was crowded on the return journey, the Japanese evidently taking with great readiness to this innovation from Europe. Some of them have not yet mastered the mystery of the raised bench on which to sit with legs pendant. It is odd to see them, on entering a railway carriage, get up on a seat and fold their legs under them, as if the carriage were leaking and they desired to keep their feet dry. On the other hand, the Japanese who have lived in Europe find a difficulty in reverting to the other national custom. Sitting next to Mr. Inouye at a Japanese dinner, he confided to me that at the end of the first hour he had felt a hankering after a chair and I noticed that he took an early opportunity of securing one. This custom of sitting on a chair at table is one of the crucial tests of advance in European education. Some years ago, 
when the Europeanizing policy of the government was finally determined upon, an order was issued requiring every official to possess himself of at least one table and four chairs. The law must be obeyed, but it was a noticeable fact that no one voluntarily went beyond the minimum number, and it must be admitted that one table and four chairs do not go far in the direction of furnishing a house in European style. I have not noticed any effect upon men of this posture involved in the absence of chairs, but among the lower classes of women there is almost invariably an undesirable crook at the knee. This, however, may possibly be due to the habit of carrying children on their back from the time they are themselves able to walk. One other peculiarity about the carriage of the Japanese girl or woman is the shuffling walk and interned toes, which come of going about in clogs and sandals. Very few of the European communities stay in Tokyo overnight, the tiresome journey between the capital and Yokohama being voluntarily undertaken for a double reason. There is a very poor European hotel at Tokyo, and a most excellent one at Yokohama. I had heard beforehand of the Grand Hotel as the best hostelry in the East, and after a week's residence am able to confirm the statement. The proprietors are French, and through all the meals of the day preserve their national reputation as cooks. The waiters speak English, more or less, and their civility knows no bounds. One day at Tiffin, I heard an Englishman order a couple of pancakes. And a lemon, he added impressively. Hi, said the waiter, and his tightly clothed legs rapidly carried him out of the room. A long interval followed, but pancakes are not made in a minute, and besides, there was the lemon. At length the waiter returned, and briskly walking up to the expectant Englishman, presented him with three pins set forth on a plate. It is not customary among the Japanese to include a dish of pins in the midday meal, but foreigners eat all sorts of things, and understanding that pins were ordered, this obliging young man procured them regardless of personal trouble. On returning to Yokohama, we went in search of a real Japanese curio, to wit, a suit comprising straw cloak with hat and sandals to match. These were not to be bought in Main Street or in any other of the thoroughfares where Europeans trade. Our jinrikisha men undertook to take us to a shop, and trotted off delighted to the Japanese quarter. The shopkeeper was an old lady with blackened teeth and scanty skirt, which last did not prevent her from climbing up a ladder to bring some of her newest goods from beneath the rafters where they were stored. The bargaining was chiefly pantomimic, and was carried on with great success. It is a long time since jinrikisha men spent so joyous a quarter of an hour. One, constituting himself shop assistant to the old lady, flung the straw cloak over his shoulders, and slowly turned round, so that we might study its cut and fit, he and his colleague laughing the while like children in possession of a new toy. 
when we tried them on ourselves they roared with laughter and as by this time half the street had congregated round the shop the scene grew into one of mad merriment when we had completed the purchase the old lady produced one of the ready reckoners which are found in every shop in japan from the bank counter to the matted floor of the dealer in straw sandals it consists of a small oblong box with rows of cane stretched crossways on these are strung a kind of bone button with which skilled fingers play and in an incredibly short space of time work out the sum at the hong kong and shanghai bank at yokohama an affable chinese in the twinkling of an eye works out an intricate sum involving the minutest fractions in value of exchange with not less readiness did the old lady with the black teeth and the inadequate skirt work out the sum of my indebtedness charging not a sen more to the foreigner than she would have done to the jinrikisha men End of chapter 14